0: Tim. Morning again, everyone. Great to be with you. Colin Taylor sends his apologies. He was down to preach his sermon and got dragged away on secret minister's business, so, <laughs> stuck with me this morning. The uh, passage that Tim's just read it puts two things before us that we're not necessarily comfortable with. Firstly, it makes explicit commands on how we're to live. And part of the way that we're blind is having that desire to do things our own way. Uh, so when I went to, to high school, I went to a school where we had quite a, a strict uniform code. so we were expected to have our shirts tucked in, we were expected to wear a blazer if it was winter, to wear a hat if it was summer, and we had to have our tie done right up and the top button done up. And almost without exception, everyone would bend the rules as much as they possibly could with that school uniform. So as soon as a teacher wasn't looking, the, the shirt would be getting untucked, the The tie would be getting loosened, the hat would be taken off, the blazer would be taken off, and we want to push that as far as we could uh, to show that we weren't going to bend to those rules. Now, unless it's a 40 degree day, it's not like a a tucked in shirt is any more uncomfortable than an untouched shirt. So if if the school that wanted our shirts untouched, we probably would have touched them in just to to prove that we're not going to do what we're told. Uh, That desire to, to do things our way, we don't completely grow out of it as we get older, do we? we? Just get a bit more selective in how we enforce it. We get better at how we hide it. And the inward desire is still there for, for me to do things my way, not, not your way, not your way, not your way, he says, his, and his boss, <laughs> doing things my way, to have control over my decisions. Now, we don't, we don't like being told what to do. I'm going to hear about that one the So, firstly, we don't like being told what to do, and secondly, we don't like telling other people what to do. I mean, sometimes we do, but we can feel uncomfortable telling other people what to do. You know, what right do I have to to judge someone else, to tell someone else how they should be living their life? And maybe that's because we don't want to hurt them, we don't want them to dislike us. Maybe it's because we know that there's actually a lot of things about us that they could point out as well, so we're worried about popping it back our way. We live in a time and place where personal choice is sacred, personal freedom and choice are sacred. And so we don't like being told what to do, and we know that other people don't like being told what to do either. But the Bible is actually filled with instructions telling us how to live our lives. And it's also clear that we're to hold other people accountable to these instructions, not just to live them out ourselves. And Now, maybe there are commands in the Bible that you really struggle with for one reason or another. The Bible has some commands that might seem pretty easy to follow, but there's other ones that are really difficult, like forgiving our enemies, forgiving people who have hurt us. Perhaps a barrier that you have to Christianity is that um, your perception of Christianity, or perhaps even your experience of Christianity, is that it places unreasonable demands on our lives. If you've got a service leaflet, you'll find an outline There that you can follow. So we're going to think first about what our motivation is for being obedient to the way the Bible calls us to live, and we'll then think about how we respond when people in the church are disobedient. And we're going to think about that in the light of an issue that's happening in the Thessalonian church that Paul writes about in the passage we've just read. Right. So to catch up on where we're up to, um, the Apostle Paul has travelled to a town called Thessalonica. He's preached the gospel there people over a short period of time. He's been persecuted there, and he's been forced to leave that town. Uh, We see all of that in Acts chapter 17. Uh, But some of the people who hear Paul's message believe it. they become Christians, and despite being persecuted by the people there, they continue to grow in their faith. Paul hears about how they're going, he's moved along to another town, he hears about how they're going, and he sends them a letter encouraging them in their faith. Um, encouraging them that um, despite the persecution they might be facing, it's all worthwhile. And we call that letter 1 Thessalonians. He gives them some instructions on how to live in that letter as well. And Then later he writes another letter, which we call 2 Thessalonians, the one we just read. And again, he begins that by encouraging them about the eternal hope that they have in Jesus, that despite the persecutions that they're going through. It will all be worthwhile. And we saw that in chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. He then wants to correct them about some false teaching that has crept into the church there about the day of the Lord already having happened. And we saw that last week in chapter 2. And now we come to chapter 3. And in verses 1 to 5, we get some helpful insight into what our motivation is for our obedience to God. Paul says in verse 4, how confident he is that the Thessalonian Christians are doing and will continue to do the things that he commands. But even before that, we see an underlying concern that Paul has in verse 1 here. He wants the message of the Lord to spread rapidly and to be honoured. And he uses the Thessalonian Christians as an example of the message of the Lord being honoured. Now, he said a similar thing back in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 13. There's actually quite a lot of overlap between the, the two letters Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says there, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So the obedience of the Thessalonian Christians, it was in response to the message that they had heard. The gospel message, the news that Jesus had died and been raised back to life so that they could be right with God. if they put their trust in Jesus, they were saved forever. Their obedience was in response to this good news. They were obeying Jesus in response to what he had done for them first. And this obedience, it's, it's more than just a grateful response Right after mentioning the commands in verse 4, Paul then says in verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. For the commands that Jesus gives, they're not just rules that he sets for the sake of having rules. They show us what it looks like to to live for him and to be like him, to be putting on God's character. People who love as we worship the God of love. People who persevere in our faith, despite whatever may come, just as Jesus persevered for us. So the commands that we find in the Bible are commands that are given to us by Jesus, showing us how we live lives that honour him and reflect his goodness. And on the flip side, by rejecting these commands, we're also rejecting God. Paul wrote about that in 1 Thessalonians as well, in chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I could um, I could talk all day and all night about how much I love my wife or how much I love my parents. But you know, if that's if I'm actually not doing anything loving at all with my wife, if I don't listen to anything she says, if I don't respect my parents and don't listen to anything they say, then you have to really question how genuine. That love is so our, our love for god overflows into obedience to him so the bible shows us how to obey um, but it's more than that it shows us why to obey as well it gives us the motivation um, it shows us that the bible is so much more than just a book of rules the bible shows us that we obey god not to to win his praise or to earn his favor or to, to try and cancel out his anger but it's in response to what he has done for us. Sending his son to, to die the death that we deserved so that everything that's wrong with us could be placed on Jesus and not placed on us. So that we can stand in God's presence on that last day, not fearful of his anger, but rejoicing in his love. He did what we needed, but what we could never achieve for ourselves so in response, we live for him. We seek to honour him by growing to be more like him. And we don't do this on our own. We depend on Jesus every step of the way for this. Paul's confidence that the Thessalonians will continue to do as they've been commanded, it's not simply confidence in them, it's confidence in the Lord, verse 4. In verse 5, he prays that the Lord would be the one who's directing their hearts. And in the first three verses, Paul's prayer is that the Lord would provide the circumstances for them to grow in their faith and for other people to respond to the gospel message as well. So our growth is something that we depend on Jesus for. We depend on his word and his spirit to guide us in our growth. As we spend time reading and reflecting what the Bible says, we discover more and more not only how we ought to live, but why we ought to live that way. So there's really no substitute for for spending that time in God's Word, that regular time in God's Word, reminding ourselves of what good news it really is and how it shapes every inch of our lives. Knowing how dependent we are on God, praying to God that, that He will be shaping us he would be helping us to live joyfully obedient lives, to be living in light of the gospel, desiring to, to grow more and more to be like Jesus. So prayer and reading really is the diet and exercise of our spiritual growth. So what's our motivation for obedience? It's responding to God's goodness to us and honouring him as we grow more and more like him. Now there's a problem with disobedience in the Thessalonian church that Paul was writing about. There were idle and disruptive believers, verse 6, who were not living according to the teaching they had received. And we see in verse 10, these people were unwilling to work. They weren't just unemployed. This isn't a, a passage that's having a crack at unemployed people who are desperately trying to find work. These are people who are unwilling to work. They made a deliberate decision not to work and to allow others to provide for them, to depend on other people. In verse 11, they were using extra time on their hands to become busy So They were interfering in other people's lives. Now, there are a few different ideas floating around of what exactly the, the cause of this idleness was, given it's a, a very different time and place to where we live at the moment. So theory number one is that it was related to the wrong understanding of the day of the Lord that we saw uh, last week in chapter two, that the day of the Lord had already come. So people were so fixated on the coming of Jesus, they were expecting at any second that they were neglecting their responsibilities in the present. Now I'd say, if anything, the danger that we have is the exact opposite to that, Uh, with long working hours and and an ever-changing world where there's constantly new things to learn and to experience, on top of family, friendships, church, and a bit of rest and relaxation, if you're lucky. There's so much for us to keep on top of in the present world that it's so easy for us to take our eyes off the fact that the life that truly matters is the one to come. There's, There's a tension uh, that we have as Christians, where we're, we're living in the world now, we have our responsibilities in the world now, but also fixing our eyes on what's to come in the future. And both of the letters that Paul writes to the Thessalonian church are really in light of this tension. This is written to a church where people are, are suffering in the present, and Paul is telling them to keep their eyes fixed on what's to come. So it's important for us to be aware of that and being intentional about making that time to spend in God's Word, to be spending uh, with our church family, just knowing that the pace of the world we live in is naturally going to drag us away from that. That's theory number one. Theory number two relates to a social structure at that time where um, a rich person would provide all the, the money and housing and whatnot for less rich people in exchange for their political alliance. So you can imagine if you had a a rich person down the road who was giving you money every week you didn't really need to work all that much. The problem with that is that a Christian's unquestioned alliance and obedience really belongs to God alone, not to the, the rich person who lives down the street. Theory number three is that these were people who saw themselves as teachers like Paul and they decided that because they were teaching the Christian message, they ought to be freed up from the the obligation to work, and they were asking the people in the church to provide for them. Um, But then, if Paul is calling these people busybodies and seems to have quite a negative attitude, it doesn't seem like they're particularly teachers. So there's a few different ideas going around about what the cause of the idleness is. Whatever the exact circumstances are, there, there are two key problems with the idleness that was going on. And Paul identified both of these problems in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he was also addressing the issue of idleness. So the first problem is that they're being unloving to the rest of the church family um, by not only sponging off them, (laughs) getting them to support them, but also by being busybodies, by interfering in people's lives. They're really becoming a nuisance to the rest of the church. Secondly, it's a terrible witness to people who aren't believers. As well, you know, they're looking at the church and they're seeing all these disorderly, disruptive people in the church who, who aren't earning their own money. So it's unloving to the church, to the people in the church, and it's a bad witness for people outside the church. So everyone is affected by this. So how do we respond to disobedience? How do we respond, not not just to the specific issue that we're seeing here, but on a on a broader sort of a scale? When people are behaving in a way that's unloving to people in the church, or when they're behaving in a way that puts the church in bad light to people outside the church, how do we respond to something like that? Verses 6 to 18 give some helpful considerations about how we might handle such a situation. I realise this isn't the nicest topic to think about, but it's important if and when the situation comes up to actually have an idea about how we apply the Bible to the situation and be able to respond in the right way to it. Now keep in mind, this is a passage that's talking about disobedience specifically by Christians, by people who are identifying as Christian. It's not a standard that we hold people to if they're not claiming to be Christian. The commands in the Bible are, they're not meant to be imposed on everyone's life out of context. The commands that are to be lived out in the context of a joyful relationship with Jesus commands it to be joyfully followed rather than being forced on people. Which means that we hold other Christians to a standard that it would be unreasonable, actually, to hold other people to. It's also good to be mindful that we're all sinners. None of us are perfect. So A passage like this isn't saying that we should find everyone's slightest faults and identify them, point them out to the church and um, drag drag them through the mud for it and punish them for it. It's talking about behaviour that's particularly ungodly, particularly unloving and harmful to the church. Maybe it's someone who uses their power to mistreat other people in the church. Uh, Maybe it's someone who speaks unkindly about people behind their backs. Uh, Maybe it's a group of people who attempts to undermine the church leadership. It might be an individual or a group. Really anything that that goes against the Bible's teaching and poses a danger to the health and the effectiveness of the church. So there are four ways that Paul shows us to respond to such a situation. So, Firstly, verse 13, we must never tire of doing what is good. You can imagine if you were one of the Thessalonian Christians who was earning their own Income they were giving to the poor and they were seeing these other people who, who weren't earning their money, they were sponging off other people, they were being a nuisance. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be a bit disheartened, wouldn't it? You're, you're striving to do the right thing and other people are, are bending the rules, and they get, seem to be getting away with it. The temptation would be either to, to resent them or to, to think, hey, that actually looks a lot easier than what I'm doing, why don't, why don't I do that as well? Paul tells them, no, keep doing what you know is right. Don't let other people compromise your opinions. Secondly, and it's closely related to that, is to make sure that we're setting the right example. Paul recalls how he worked hard in Thessalonica, earning his own living so that he wouldn't be a burden to anyone there. He's a pains to point that out. He says in verse 9, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate Now, it wouldn't have been wrong for Paul to receive financial support while he was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. But because of the situation, he gives up that right so that he could set the example of how people in that church should be living, which is supporting themselves and not putting that burden on other people. Paul wants to live out that example for them. So if we find ourselves in a situation where people in our church are gossiping just for an example, Um, we need to to ask ourselves, how are we going against it? How are we setting the right example? Have I examined my life and made sure that I'm not guilty of that as well? Am I making sure that not only am I not doing that, am I actually going beyond that? Am I setting a good example with the use of my words? Am I setting the right example there? And thirdly, we need to point people's sins out to Paul tells the idol and disruptive people in verse 12 to turn from their disobedience. The the overall picture that the Bible gives us about dealing with sin is that um, we should keep things as private and as gentle as we can for as long as we can when dealing with it. So Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 18 that when someone sins, we should point out their faults just to them, one-on-one, not going behind their backs and... Telling everyone else about it and telling everyone but them, going to that person and having the conversation with them one-on-one, probably. And look, hopefully this will be the point where the person who's in the wrong repents of it and recommits to turning away from what they've been doing and living their life for God's glory. It's only when they refuse to receive correction from one, from one person that more people are brought into it into the process. And fourthly, if it gets to this stage, we exercise discipline with the goal of repentance. Discipline with the goal of repentance. So when someone has refused to listen to you, when there have been other people who have been brought into the process as well, and they, they still refuse to turn from what they're doing wrong, we get to the point where Paul says in verse 14 here, keep away from them, don't associate with them. In order, verse 14, that they may feel ashamed. So the the message gets across to them that the way they're living is not in line with how Jesus expects his people to live. And the goal here is always love. The goal isn't revenge. The goal isn't putting other people in their place. We genuinely want this person or these people to to turn from what they're doing and commit to honouring Jesus in every part of their life. Now, the, the church leader or the church leaders have the ultimate responsibility for enforcing this sort of discipline, um, but Paul expects all of us to participate in it by not associating with that person. Now, I take it that doesn't just mean pretending they're invisible when you, when you see them, just walking straight past them without acknowledging them or anything like that, but the way that we interact with that person should make it clear that they've overstepped the mark. And maybe the only way you can do that is to remind them gently when you, when you see them that what you're doing is wrong, I don't approve of it. And our relationship is not quite right while this is going on. There's a, there's a break, a relationship break between us. Now perhaps you'll be in a position where there's, there's some sort of tangible action you can take to disassociate with them. It might be um, not being in a growth group with them anymore, something like that there'll be situations where church leadership will actually step in and remove someone from serving in the church if it gets to the point where they're willfully continuing to willfully act in a way that disobeys Jesus. We see in one Corinthians chapter 5, there's an extreme situation where Paul orders someone to be removed from the church altogether because they're continuing to disobey what they've been commanded. But even there, the goal is still love wants that person to, to come to their senses, to, to recognise the seriousness of what they're doing and to repent. In fact, in, in 2 Thessalonians, he finishes by saying in the verse 16 and verse 18, the Lord be with all of you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He's clearly pointing out that this is a letter that's written lovingly to the obedient and the disobedient in the church. He wants the grace of God to be with all of them and he wants those who are doing the right thing to be encouraged in doing that, he wants the people that are doing the wrong thing uh, to recommit uh, to obediently following Jesus. This is a letter that's lovingly directed at everyone. Now, Issues of disobedience in the church are serious and they affect quite a lot of people when they happen and they're often quite complicated as well, they're they're rarely black and white. It's all very well for me to give simple examples, but um, we know that when situations come up, they're they're rarely simple, cut and paste sort of issues. There's a danger of people being badly hurt, even when the issues are handled well, let alone when they're handled badly. So it's important when a a situation of this nature comes up to, to be in prayer about it asking God for wisdom, looking into God's word and making sure that we're following his word and what we're doing. To be seeking advice from, from wise and godly people uh, to, to make sure that we're going about it the right way. And to always be acting out of love, seeking the restoration of the person who's doing the wrong thing, not trying to cause them harm. Disobedience to the commands of Jesus is a serious thing, and it's it's serious in light of the purpose of obedience to Jesus. Jesus saved us through his death. He delights in us, honouring him by living lives, obedient to him, responding to his grace, growing more like him as we await that day when we see him face to face. That will be a day more wonderful than we can ever imagine. Let pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your work, that through it you teach us uh, how we might live lives that are obedient to you, and how we might live lives where we're growing to people like you, and we trust you and depend on you in that, but it's you that's working in us and growing us. And we ask that when we look at the commands that you give us, that we wouldn't look at them as just rules to follow, uh, but commands that you have graciously given us to grow us to be more like you and show us how we live a life in response to the great things that you've done for us and the, the wonderful things that you offer to us. We ask that as we live obediently to you, we help, you help us to keep the end in mind. That as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, encouraging them about how worthwhile their sufferings would be on that last day, that you'd help us to keep that end in mind. You'd be helping us to be living for that day. We pray for your your wisdom and your grace where there are situations that come up in the church. We don't want them to happen. And we, we dread having to have the difficult conversations that uh, we ask that when they come up, you'll be giving us the wisdom. That it will be coming out of a place of love for the people involved. That it will be coming out of a place of love and obedience to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.